people say, you know, the older you get, the more you're like you were when you were at the beginning of your life path. And so the more he feels that he needs to show it, the more all this veneer goes away. The veneer of 22 years in power, the veneer of education, the more he believes in power and strength. You're not going to show weakness because that's what he knows. He's using the experience of Podvarotny of his youth. I'm Julia Yaffe. This is About a Boy, the story of Vladimir Putin. Chapter 5, All the Worlds of Dvor. Even if he's been a leader who's ruled by fear for the last 23 years, you're not the top dog when you're not winning the fight. His biggest problem now is not with the West, it's with the people in the Kremlin who are starting to think that, well, Putin might be weak. I mean, we know this guy's ruthless and he'll do whatever it takes. And it's the message of the Dvor, you know, you fight until you prevail. This guy didn't go anywhere. It's still inside him. Spanais Podvarotny is a small guy that needs to survive at any cost. Vladimir Putin has been president for 23 years, and he clearly has no intentions of going anywhere. In fact, he is about to declare that he is running for another presidential term, his fourth. In the last decade, Putin has styled himself as a modern-day Russian emperor, a tsar, some kind of amalgam of Peter the Great and Stalin, determined to gather the territories of the old Russian empire under his crown. As his foreign minister recently told someone, quote, he has three advisors, Ivan the Terrible, Peter the Great, and Catherine the Great, end quote. Putin, too, intends to go down in history as a pivotal Russian leader, a titan of world historical proportions, Vladimir the Great. But for so many of us from that part of the world, it's hard to look at him and not see one thing, a spana from the Dvor, a punk from the streets of Leningrad. You can see it in the way he thinks, that physical power is paramount, that there are no win-win or lose-lose outcomes, that loyalty is the ultimate qualification and betrayal the ultimate sin. But it's also there in the way he speaks. Snot is his favorite metaphor. He makes rape jokes. He refers to people's genitals. He is crass and he delights in it. He uses words and turns a phrase that people aren't used to hearing from the Russian head of state. They were more used to hearing them in the dvor, or the prison yard. Here's Andrew Weiss, who oversees the Russia program at the Carnegie Endowment. He's also the author of The Accidental Tsar. If you think back to one of the first things that Vladimir Putin said that made a mark on the world stage, it was right after a series of terrorist attacks in Russian cities. And Putin comes out at some point right after one of these incidents and says, we'll pursue the terrorists anywhere, and if need be, we'll wipe them out in the outhouse. Even if you don't know Russian, you can hear the anger and disdain that Putin doesn't even try to hide. But then there are the words themselves. Here's what he said. Quote, We will pursue the terrorists everywhere. If they're in the airport, we'll get them at the airport. And you'll have to excuse me, but if we find them in the bathroom, we'll whack them in the john, and that's it. The matter is closed, end quote. 
Then there was the time a French journalist had the temerity to ask Putin about the war crimes Russian troops were committing in Chechnya, in a war Putin had started. In response, Putin invited the journalist to come to Moscow and have a circumcision so extreme that, quote, nothing ever grows back. And then there was the time that he had a press conference with the president of Kazakhstan just before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Putin said Ukraine must adhere to its obligations under the Minsk agreements, and then used a rape joke from an old song to express himself. More precisely, it is about a man having sex with the body of a dead woman, and about how she must bear it, whether she likes it or not. It's hard to translate it exactly, but the best rendition of it that I've seen is, it is your duty, my beauty. I asked my dad about this because he was the first person to point out to me the extent to which Putin is still that little hoodlum from the Dvor, that Spana. The way Putin speaks, why does that remind you of Spana? His jokes. Like what? If uh, grandma had balls, it would be a grandpa. People who went to college don't talk this way. But in his mind, he never left this courtyard, Dvor, to continue using this kind of language and jokes, especially on the international big stage. So the image of the guy from the Dvor, this is something that's been coming out more and more in the rhetoric and in the sort of style and tone of language that's being used by not just Putin during the war in Ukraine, but by the people around him. This is Fiona Hill, former Russia director on the National Security Council and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. They're all using these kinds of expressions now that, you know, kind of used in Russian cinema that, you know, glorifies the gangs and the organized crime groups. Everyone's using that language now, including Dmitry Medvedev, who used to be the kind of softer, fuzzier, gentler, more refined version of Vladimir Putin. So the whole persona of that kid from the Dvor has been taken on by all of the people around him. In many ways, it's very infectious. Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, who is the most intelligent человек you can imagine, with higher education, high class, everything, suddenly starts speaking like Putin to look tough. Ну, не хочу к жаргону обращаться, но все-таки у нас есть такое понятие: пацан сказал, пацан сделал, да? Вот надо, по крайней мере, в этом понятии должны соблюдаться и на международном уровне. Patsan skazal, patsan zdelal, Lavrov said. It means the guy said it and the guy did it. Remember when my dad explained the meaning of this phrase in episode three? What does it mean, patsan skazal, patsan zdelal? This is basically um, that you have to be careful what you promise. Don't promise something that they cannot deliver. This is a quintessential phrase from the Dvor as well as from the conjoined worlds of Russian prisons and organized crime. It's why Lavrov almost apologizes for using it. And here's Putin in his very first big press conference in the summer of 2001, using a modified version of that expression. If I said it, he says, then it has to be done. The other thing Lavrov mentions in that clip are panyatia, which we also talked about in episode three. Here's how Catherine Belton, author of Putin's People, explained it. So, uh, panyatia in Russian is a kind of a mafia term. 
and it describes so-called understandings between friends. But it's a very, very kind of murky world and it's very ambiguous where actually you don't know whether you've crossed a line until somebody suddenly decides that you have. Here's what's striking about that. Sergei Lavrov is the foreign minister of the largest country with the largest nuclear arsenal on Earth, a country that constantly praises itself for its pivotal contributions to Western culture. Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Tchaikovsky, Kandinsky. And here he is talking about panyatia, the unwritten rules of the prison yard. We live by these rules, he says. Moreover, he adds, the whole world has to live by them. Here's another lesson Putin took from the Dvor, the importance of loyalty. If you look at the people who surround Putin today, those who are closest to him, they are people he's known ever since childhood or from his KGB days or from his time in Sapchak's office in St. Petersburg. They have all become rich and powerful simply because they have stuck by Putin through everything and played by his rules. His cabinet is essentially the same few dozen people playing musical chairs. And what's striking is, no matter how badly they mess up in their jobs, if they are loyal, they are never fired, just rotated into another position. In Putin's world, it is loyalty, not competence, that matters most. He doesn't fire anybody because it wasn't part of his upbringing, like in the courtyard. You can't fire anybody. They will still live there. How can you fire the guy who lives next to you? Yeah, You just either make him a friend or make him useful. I think that the lack of trust and cohesion in Russian society is a big source of what makes Russia, Russia. And the fact that there aren't good institutions, the rule of law doesn't work. So the only thing you really can rely on at the end of the day is your family or your closest friends. Here again is Putin in his campaign autobiography, First Person. I have a lot of friends, but only a few people are really close to me. They have never gone away. They have never betrayed me. And I haven't betrayed them either. In my view, that is what counts most. I don't even know why you would betray your friends. In 2018, Russian state television made a glowing biopic about Vladimir Putin. The Russian president sat down for several interviews with the film's director, Andrei Kondrashov. In one scene, Kondrashov asks Putin if he knows how to forgive. Yes, Putin says, but not everything. What can't you forgive, Kondrashov asks him. Betrayal, Putin replied. Kondrashov noted immediately that Putin's face turned dark when he said this. Did he have personal experience with betrayal, with treachery? Not really, Putin said. Well, Kondrashov replied, people must have been too afraid of you to betray you. It's hard to say, Putin replies. Maybe I just picked people who were incapable of it. Putin has always been very clear about what happens to traitors. In 2010, after 10 Russian spies known as the illegals were returned to Russia in a spy swap, Putin met with all of them, including the infamous redhead 
Anna Chapman. Afterwards, he told reporters that they all sang together. The song they sang? Where Does the Motherland Begin? The theme song from The Sword and the Shield, a spy film that had gotten Putin interested in the KGB in the first place. By the way, as president, Putin issued four presidential diktats awarding Russia's top state honors to Stanislav Lubshin, the actor who played the hero Alexander Belov in the film. But I digress. After the meeting with the illegals, Putin was asked what happened. How are these spies uncovered in the U.S.? He was very clear. It was the result of betrayal, he said. And we all know what happened to traitors. Quote, traitors always meet a bad end, either from drinking or drugs or in a ditch. End quote. And throughout his presidency, he has made sure of that. In 2006, Alexander Litvinenko, an FSB agent who flipped and moved to the West, was poisoned with polonium in London. It took him months to die of radiation poisoning. In 2018, Sergei Skripal, another former FSB officer who flipped, was targeted with a nerve agent in the Vichok, though he survived. But the point was clear. If you took an oath to the country's security services, like Alexander Belov had, and like Putin himself had, you'd better not betray it. After we started taping this podcast, we got perhaps the most spectacular illustration of how Putin views loyalty. On August 23rd, a private jet carrying Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner mercenary group, exploded in the sky over Russia. It was exactly two months to the day that Prigozhin had launched a revolt against Russia's military leadership and began a march on Moscow. Putin had gone on national television back then and called Prigozhin a traitor. But then, after lulling Prigozhin into a false sense of security, he made sure that he too, like every traitor, ended up dead in a ditch. When Putin first came to power, he was not yet a Vladimir the Great in the making. As you recall from our previous episode, he was a moth, a relative nobody, both at home and especially abroad. He was the brand new leader of a chaotic, still impoverished country that had lost all its colonies and whose army was falling apart. Russia was a shell of its Cold War superpower self. On the international stage, Putin was suddenly in a role he remembered all too well, a small kid in a very big dvor, one where his physical abilities didn't at all match his ambitions. When he became president in 2000, he looked like the weakest kid who went into the dvor, and that dvor being the world stage. You could see it um, in some of the videos and some of the meetings that he had where he was absolutely shy. He was shy at state dinners. Again, he was obviously the president of Russia. He's, he was wealthy by that time. But still, he felt himself to be the smallest kid in the room, the weakest kid in the room, coming from an impoverished country that owed money to everyone. This again is Andrew Rifkin, a Russian-American writer who grew up in St. Petersburg. One of his first visits in the year 2000 was a summit in Australia 
where he first met Bill Clinton, who was on his way out as a U.S. president. And they're in a room somewhere, no press. They were talking. But in the other room, press was waiting for him with cameras, microphones, everything. So Bill Clinton came up to him and he said, I think it would be a good idea if we walked out together and I could like have my hand on your shoulder, we could have like some sort of physical contact, which they did. What Putin said was, I will never forget that. If you view it through the prism of, of the Dvor, I think that he saw someone very strong who saw him as the smallest kid in the room and who wanted to help him out. It was like a gesture from Bill Clinton, which is why I think I cannot remember a single time when Russia or anything Russian has ever attacked Bill Clinton. He's aware about his height and how he has to bring down to his size larger people who might be larger physically or seemingly larger in terms of power and their grip on issues. So one of the first, you know, kind of meetings that he has with Barack Obama, he picks small chairs. You know, so Obama is sitting very awkwardly in a chair that doesn't quite fit him. And then Putin slouches and lounges in the chair. Remember that Obama refers to him at one point as the slouchy kid at the back of the classroom. Remember, he's a little man. And almost hilariously, he found the one person in the elite that's shorter than he is to be president for a while. Here's David Rebnik, editor of The New Yorker and once a Moscow correspondent for The Washington Post. I mean, I don't want to insult the height challenged or vertically challenged, but it is pretty amazing that he went out and found Dmitry Medvedev, who's, how tall is he? He's what Groucho Marx used to call well over four feet. Putin wants to, you know, kind of make it very clear that, in fact, you know, a small man can pack a very big punch. Putin had other tricks up his sleeve, too. Other ways of cowing otherwise powerful people into submission. He was always incredibly late, sometimes ridiculously late, even at meetings that he wants to have himself. He would just not show up for hours and people would be plied with food and drink. So by the time that people get into the meeting, many people want to go to the bathroom. And, um, you know, they can't because here he is and he'll speak for hours. And you can see the discomfort on people's faces, the <laughs> realisation that they shouldn't have had anything to drink. And, you know, he isn't really eating or drinking. He's in complete control and tea keeps getting poured into people's cups. It's all deliberate. There's the other, you know, classic story of intimidation with Angela Merkel. I mean, he, he does this to women, you know, quite frequently. She's the Chancellor of Germany, you know, obviously a powerful figure. And they're meeting in one of his daches, and he has his black Labrador, Connie, come into the room and sniff around Angela Merkel's chair. And I mean, that would be disrespectful in any kind of setting, having a dog bound into an official meeting. But it's worse because he knows, and most other people in her entourage know, that she's scared by dogs because of um, an incident in which she was bitten by a dog. And she handles herself well, but it's obvious that he's trying to intimidate. In the summer of 2009, a business dispute between the owners of several factories in the town of Pikalova, near St. Petersburg, ground the factories there to a halt. Workers stopped getting paid and they went on strike, at one point even blocking the highway. Putin was technically the prime minister then, but he flew in and he staged a big meeting with important men in the government and the factory owners. 
and he made sure that it was all televised. He ordered them to open the factories back up, pay the wagerers, and take care of the people. And then, in a scene that has become legendary in Russian politics, he summoned Oleg Deripaska, an oligarch and one of the richest men in Russia, to come up and sign the agreement. Except the way he summoned him, his body language, his tone, was kind of like the way Tony Soprano might have summoned a capo who was one wrong word away from getting dismembered on Staten Island. Or as if Deripaska were a child getting called into the principal's office. So he humiliated him in front of uh, locals when he told him, come over here, sign that uh, agreement that you will not do uh, any harm to this city. And uh, Deripaska came over, signed it, and I was walking away and he said, hey, come back, give my pen back. So uh, show that I'm the boss here. Even with your billions, you're nothing. When he became president, he didn't start a conflict with the U.S. or with the European Union or NATO right away. He didn't, like, try to power his way through the system. But I think little by little, through these, like, small moves, through the being late to meetings, these little provocations, he did start building up this persona that was very familiar to him when he was uh, in the Dvor. In 2003, shortly after coming to power, Putin went after the biggest oligarch of them all, oil magnate Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Khodorkovsky was the richest man in Russia at the time, and he was starting to dabble in politics and to vie for power. And when he ignored Putin's warnings, Putin had him arrested as Khodorkovsky sat on the tarmac in his private jet. Then Putin sent him to prison for a decade and took away his entire business empire, divvying it up between his old Leningrad friends. After that, it was crystal clear who was in charge and what the rules were for the oligarchs. Stay out of politics and you get to keep your money. Get involved in politics and you follow Khodorkovsky to jail, or worse. I remember when we were talking, when Khodorkovsky was under arrest, and you said, this is just like in the Dvor. He's picking a fight with a guy that's bigger than him to raise his own stature. The idea is that if you're playing with this guy, it means you're in the same league. This is in part why Putin never says Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's name out loud. When he was asked about accusations that he had ordered Navalny's poisoning with Novichok in August of 2020, Putin said, quote, There's something people don't often pay attention to, but it's significant. It's a trick in which you attack the top officials, and in that way, you pull yourself up to a certain level to say, Look, this person is my sparring partner, and I'm of the same caliber as he is, so treat me the same way as a figure of national significance, end quote. To say his name is kind of accept the challenge. And he doesn't want even to be in this competition. Even like losing to a big guy, let's give you some kind of points. He doesn't want to plant this seed in people's mind that there is a challenge to his rule. But even as Putin solidified his control at home, Events on the world stage continued to show him that Russia's global stature still hadn't recovered and that world leaders still didn't respect him. They didn't deem it necessary to take his opinion into account. 
On 9-11, when terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, Putin was the very first foreign leader to call George W. Bush. As someone who had dealt with the scourge of terrorism at home, he wanted to tell Bush that they were in the same boat, that they were allies. Putin was once again sidling up to the big guy in the Dvor, hoping to be under his protection and on the winning team. Instead, when Bush decided to invade Iraq two years later, he completely ignored Putin's vehement disagreement. Bush even bypassed the UN Security Council, where Russia still had veto power, a vestige of the power it had earned in World War II. Putin was furious. I think what solidified his view of the world stage as a dvor was the 2003 invasion of Iraq. That invasion shocked him, and it taught him a lesson. He saw that you can go against the UN, you can go against these like institutions, you can even have people in your own country be against the war, but if you really want something, you can bomb the hell out of it, and no one's going to stop you, even in a country that's like supposedly, you know, a rule of law. That's what leaders do. Like, he can do that. And therefore, when I become strong enough, I can do the same thing. The American invasion of Iraq did something else, too. It planted the seed in Putin's mind that Bush's drive to spread democracy all over the world, even through the muzzle of a gun, would inevitably come for him and his increasingly authoritarian rule. When color revolutions swept Georgia in 2003, Ukraine in 2004, and Kyrgyzstan in 2005, all of which had been Soviet republics, by the way, Putin became sure of it. At the 2007 Munich Security Conference, Putin expressed his icy rage at America and the West, at what he saw as the hypocrisy of Bush's freedom agenda. He pined openly for the days of the Cold War when there was not one but two superpowers calling the shots in the world and checking each other's power. He said he was tired of the U.S. lecturing him about democracy. One year later, in April 2008, over the objections of his allies, Bush insisted on preliminarily inviting Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. Four months later, Putin invaded Georgia. It was his message to America and the West, stay off my turf. Overseas, a fierce battle broke out today on the fringe of the former Soviet Union. The fighting is in Georgia's province of South Ossetia, home to many Russians who are still loyal to the Kremlin and want to break away from Georgia. The war in Georgia, which was his like first foray into foreign military conflicts, he started the war on the sidelines of uh, the Olympic Games. So it was breaking the rules to him. Like the Olympic Games, they're all about peace. And, you know, he's breaking that rule. It was like, I'm against your authority. I grew strong enough to sneak a punch or two in, and I'm going to do it. President Bush has told Russian leaders that military action against Georgia is unacceptable. Vice President Cheney said Russia's invasion must not go unanswered. Yet, for all their protests and condemnations, neither the U.S. nor NATO did anything to stop Putin. The war lasted just five days. By the end of it, Russia had bitten off 20% of Georgia's territory and formed two sham countries out of it. He had just gone in and taken it, and no one had stopped him. 
And of course, being from the yard, being from the courtyard, the worst thing is weakness. And he saw this lack of reaction from the West, the big guys, the guys with muscle, is very weak. He knew they could like physically overpower him, and yet they didn't. And in his system of values was like, okay, if I push this far, I can probably push further, and they're not going to do anything. The history of his relations with the West is just how far he could push them until they started pushing back. The rules he had learned in the Dvor were on full display now. Physical power is the only thing that matters. And if you win, the other side loses. Zero sum. People in Russia feel like, you know, violence is a legitimate way to establish your power, to convey your feelings. In his dealings with them, Putin came to see Westerners as impossibly weak. All they wanted in his view was money and comfort, the easy life. Their leaders could be bought and sold, and their citizens, he thought, were incapable of even the slightest suffering, not like Russians were. Here's Russian investigative journalist Evgenia Albats. Putin think that, you know, all these values about being honest or love your neighbor, all that comes out of impossibility on the part of those Western people to fight. I would say that he knows that people in the West, they got accustomed to certain level of life, certain standards of living. And he knows that Soviets can live on almost nothing. And in order to be strong, you should be able to suffer. His view of the Western culture, I think, was... The values of these people is just money. Like, if I give them oil, they're going to stay quiet. And I think his view was that as long as he has stable financial relations with the West, they're not going to do anything. And in that sense, he did regard them as very weak, as people who didn't have it in them to actually oppose him. You would have scandal after scandal. You would have one offense after another, And nothing would happen to Putin, nothing would happen to Russia. Of course, I'm talking about, like, you know, expelling tens of Russian diplomats from Britain. It's a move, but it's not really the kind of move that a person like Putin sees as a move. To him, it's really is nothing. A dog senses when somebody is afraid of it and bites. If you become jittery, they will think that they're stronger. Only one thing works in such circumstance to go on the offensive. You must hit first and hit so hard that your opponent will not rise to his feet. In 2014, using the Olympics for cover once again, Putin invaded Ukraine and illegally annexed Crimea. It was the first time that the borders of Europe had been changed by force since the end of World War II. Tonight, joy in the streets of Moscow. Thousands strong, bellowing the Russian anthem, welcoming Crimea back to fatherland Russia. I think after Crimea, that little kid in the Dvor, I think he started thinking of himself as like omnipotent and thinking of the other strong guys as like, what if they're not leaders at all? What if they're not strong at all? If they're they're not doing anything to me, I can probably go further and further. And that really emboldened him. Within a couple months, 
AstroTurf separatists would turn up in the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. They would start a war that would simmer for eight years, taking over 10,000 lives. On February 24, 2022, Putin decided to finish it with a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. President Putin gave an order to move troops in. This is a large-scale escalation. We'll hold Russia accountable for its aggression. NATO has condemned what it called a... Western countries have agreed to disconnect Russia from the SWIFT banking system. These have been long and restless nights over the last couple of days as the Russians have advanced into the capital. Russians are occupying Ukrainian territory and the U.S. should impose sanctions at any time. For years... Putin had turned to Russians' collective memory and trauma of World War II and turned it into a state cult. He began having expensive Victory Day parades every single year, not just on the big anniversaries. Now, the state would mark not just the end of the war, but the anniversaries of its biggest battles. And each one became an excuse for more nationalist pageantry. New monuments and museums went up, and all over the country, the Kremlin encouraged immortal regiments. They were processions of people carrying photos of their ancestors who had fought in the war and often died in it. Kremlin-controlled TV pumped out show after show about the war, and Russian cinematographers who were funded by the Kremlin made films glorifying it. The figure of 27 million dead became not a tragedy, but a point of pride. In fact, it became impossible to question the disastrous decision-making that had led to such mind-bending casualty rates. The state went after those who did. In part, it was Putin's own obsession with the war as a member of the generation that grew from its ashes. But it was also a brilliant political ploy. Every single Soviet family had lost not one, not two, not even three people in the war. It was an experience everyone could relate to. And in the absence of a state ideology after communism, Putin decided that the war would be the glue that would hold this multi-ethnic, multi-confessional nation together. And as his rule turned increasingly against America, the victory the Soviets had won through such great suffering came to prove their moral superiority over the decadent and whiny West. And when it came to invading Ukraine, it provided him an easy image of the enemy, one that Russians would instantly recognize from World War II and recognize as evil, Ukrainians as Nazis. Over the course of Putin's presidency, he has basically turned it into Russia's equivalent of a national religion. And it's the main legitimizing force for his rule. And it's obviously being warped and utilized for malicious reasons in the war against Ukraine. But it's useful in another way. If you lose 27 million people in a war, if that's your benchmark for real suffering, then what's 300,000 casualties? That's, by the way, the current estimate for Russian dead and wounded since February 2022. Anything short of 27 million suddenly seems absolutely tolerable. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine is nothing like World War II. If anything, it's like a fight in the Dvor. That's how he sees it. It's against, you know, the opposing gang. And in this case, that's depicted as the United States and the West, the existential fight. I mean, he's basically saying they're the kids in the Dvor, you know, fighting for their survival. He believes that, you know, that he can wait and see. He keeps killing Ukrainians, 
Americans keep supplying weapons. Uh, he's running this war of attrition until everybody gets tired, everybody gets uh, preoccupied, you know, with their own affairs, presidential elections in the United States, so, you know, etc. And he, he just have to wait until the other side gets tired, and then he will attack with full force. We've seen throughout Putin's presidency that Putin is a man with a zero-sum mindset. I don't think he's someone who seeks or believes in win-win outcomes. So any attempt to kind of freeze the conflict at the current boundaries, it would only be a temporary pause and should not be taken as meaning anything more than that. I'm sure he would love to sit at some negotiating table, get something, and then sell it to the Russian public and be a victor. But that's not an option anymore. The war in Ukraine has not gone as Putin had planned. Initially, he, he thought probably that it will be a catwalk, uh, like Syria or like Georgia. He didn't expect it to be a real fight. So Putin immediately resorted to threatening to use nuclear weapons, of which, as he's like to remind us, he has plenty. And yet, despite the setbacks in the war, despite the strictures of Patsanskazal Patsansdil, he still hasn't made good on his threat. Why? The nuclear thing is actually when we see that he's lying. He took out that gun, but like it has no bullets. Like he can't do it because it's suicide and he doesn't want to commit suicide. He understands the consequences. He's not suicidal. He doesn't make moves that will hurt him. Never will be a, a nuclear strike or anything because it will mean end of him. When I asked my dad about how Putin sees the war, he told me a story from his own dvor. His dvor and a neighboring one used to get into regular battles over turf and honor. One day, a gang from my dad's dvor stumbled on a scrawny kid from a rival dvor. The little kid started mouthing off and cursing them, provoking the gang of guys for whom he was clearly no match. But when the big guys lunged at him, he took off running. They chased him and chased him until he turned a corner and the gang from my dad's dvor found themselves face to face with a much bigger and much burlier crew. It had all been a trap. He's in a very bad place. He's definitely miscalculated. He thought he's like a big guy fighting small guy. But around the corner, there was another big guy who like helped the small guy to fight back. So what do you think he's, that, that kid inside him is feeling? Having started this fight... Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, shit. What do I do now? Remember, in the Dvor, weakness is death. The slightest whiff of it would result in violence and eternal humiliation. This is the first time, in my memory, and actually in, in Putin's presidency, where his image is starting to crumble inside Russia. And it's starting to crumble... Not in the sense of, oh my God, he's a bad politician. The economy is so bad under him. Like our living standards fell. It's not that like, you know, you can't go into a McDonald's, buy a normal car, travel outside of the country, or it's not even that like your son died on the front lines in Ukraine. No, it's him saying that he would do something and not doing it. It's him opening way for a potential humiliation of Russia and its people. That's essentially a death sentence. 
Do you think if he loses the war, he's gone because it, he shows weakness internally? He will be responsible for Russian humiliation. And it's not tolerated in this kind of environment. Probably at a certain point, they will organize an accident or something or heart attack. Hopefully no windows. Knowing that, there's only one direction for Putin to go in Ukraine. Forward. All the way. I think to Putin, the only end to this war that he sees is Russia taking control of the entire Ukraine. Possibly more, but like Ukraine at the least. Not just Donbass, not just the regions that are now formally annexed. And here's why. If we go back to the whole Dvor thing, you have to stand by your words. And if you take out a gun, you have to shoot. Otherwise, your own people, your own people are going to go against you. Your own people are going to say that you're weak. Your own people are going to depose you and you're going to lose cred with your own people. Not somewhere on the world stage, but on the stage that like really matters, on the stage where people can actually put a knife in your back. Backing down isn't an option to him sitting at the negotiating table and giving back the lands that he took, he might as well take a gun to his head because he will lose with a country that grew up on these Panyatia laws. There's the rules of the kids in the Dvor, but remember there are lots of other people in the Dvor, lots of the old ladies, all the other kind of the people who live around there. And, you know, he doesn't really talk about this in the book, but one could also imagine other people in the Dvor intervening to try to stop this fight from continuing to its logical, nasty conclusion. But it's not going to come from Putin. That's not who he is. He's the person who fights to the end. About a Boy, the story of Vladimir Putin is written and hosted by me, Julia Yaffe, directed by Valerie Thomas, produced by Margot Gray, edited by Chris Basil, mixing and mastering also by Chris Basil, Production assistance by Bill Schultz. Theme music by Kravastok. Special thanks to John Kelly, Ben Landy, Andrew Rifkin, Alex Bigler, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Moura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schuff. Listen and follow About a Boy, the story of Vladimir Putin, an Odyssey original podcast in partnership with Puck on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>